Hello and welcome to Tech Shop from Parents Home, the podcast that looks at the impact of digital technologies on family life for parents, teachers, professionals and policymakers. I'm Vicky Shopbolt and I'm the founder and CEO of Parents Home. And I'm usually accompanied by my fellow podcaster, Geraldine Bedell, but her daughter had a baby this morning, so she's busy elsewhere. Uh, but I'm joined by Caroline Dynage, MP for Gosport, Stubbington, Leons the Solent and Hill Head. I'm not sure if that's the longest constituency name in British politics, but it's it's got to be quite up there. Welcome, Caroline, and hi. Hello, thank you very much. It's normally just called Gosport, but I don't like the good people of the rest of it to be left out, so I tend to sort of just chuck it all in there. <laughs> quite right, too. Um as Minister of State for Digital and Culture at the DCMS, you were responsible for drawing up the online safety bill, which, as regular listeners will know, has been uh, something we've talked about a lot um, on this podcast. And over the autumn, it's been scrutinised by a joint committee of MPs and peers, and they're due to report on the 10th of December. Uh, the bill's expected to go before Parliament next spring. So just to get us started, Caroline, it'd be fabulous to hear your perspective on kind of the starting point for the online safety bill and and what you were hoping to achieve with it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the thing is, and we saw this during the, um, the, the height of our lockdown period more than ever, didn't we? The fact is that the online world is now totally you know it totally influences every part of our lives and and during lockdown the you know google became the new classroom and zoom became the new boardroom and netflix and uh, various other platforms uh, became our movie theaters and our and our um cinemas and and all of this interaction you know it, it really has enabled us to be able to continue life in a semblance of normal but it also has underlined that there are some real uh, unpleasant dangers out there in the online world. And so this piece of legislation is really trying to tackle some of the uh, pitfalls, some of the ills of the online world, some of the dangers uh, to make it safer for everybody, but in particular for children and young people. Uh, it's a big old piece of legislation. I mean, the government department, DCMS, have been working on it for some years. I came to it in February 2020 when I took on that role. And it really is quite groundbreaking. This is really Britain setting a global standard for internet safety. It's the most comprehensive approach yet to any kind of online regulation. And, uh, but, you know, nearly nine in 10 adults and 99% of 12 to 15 year olds are online. And as, as it continues to grow and transform our lives, often for the better, we can't, you know, can't say it's all bad. We, we can't ignore that there are some really real harms which people face online every day. And it's the government's role to do what we can to um, bring in these protections. And I think, I mean, from our perspective, one of the most exciting things about the bill is that that it exists, that actually the government is grasping that really complicated nettle and, and saying we can't have self-regulation anymore. It's time we had regulation. The, the Joint Scrutiny Committee, I think, by general consent, seems to be doing a really good job. Uh, and then, of course, we had the testimony of the Facebook whistleblower, Francis Haugen, which caused quite a stir. Uh, it was very certainly a very powerful testimony. Do you think that the bill that goes before Parliament next spring is going to be very different to the one that the draft that we've seen thus far? 
there will certainly be changes to it. And that was the whole point of doing this pre-legislative scrutiny. I, I just felt it was really important because this bill is mammoth. It's kind of almost like five bills in one. No other country in the world has really ever set out to do anything quite so comprehensive. Other countries around the world have done bits of this, but no one's ever tried to tackle it in quite the same expansive uh, way that we are, which is why we need to try and get it into the very best possible shape it can be before it uh, comes to Parliament. And so up until September, that was my role. I got reshuffled in September. Uh, but I was very keen uh, that the pre-legislative scrutiny process would look at every bit of it. And, you know, it's made up with some real experts uh, from across the House of Lords and the House of Commons who've got a real vested interest in various bits of this. They're real champions for various bits of this, uh, like Baroness Kidron, who's really very, very knowledgeable on um, aspects of um, online safety, particularly when it comes to child protection. And they're looking at this through all sorts of different lenses and trying to get it into the very best possible shape that they can. I haven't heard it described in quite that way before, five bills in one, but it is apps. I mean, it's huge. It's quite a difficult bill to digest was our, our first reading of it. I think it's taken us about three readings to start to get our head around it. One of the gaps for us, and you maybe won't be surprised to hear me championing this, parents aren't really in the bill, even though they're so crucial to outcomes for children. And it feels like a really big omission. In the United States, they start from such a different position that they acknowledge parents' roles and they have a parental consent mechanism, at least up to the age of 13. I, I just wondered why, why there isn't more of a focus on parents and whether parents will actually be able to complain uh, on behalf of their children. Will that be one of the, one of the things that the bill enables? This bill has been, uh, we, we, we approached it in quite a different way from the way that legislation often uh, is kicked off. And, and the reason I say that is because quite often legislation is quite quite vertical in the way that it's designed. You kind of, you take a, a, a in this case, say a harm and you follow it you follow it down uh, and you sort of, you know, you point out who would be involved and what you'd need to do to prevent it. And that's what, you know, naturally where you'd think about parents. But this piece of legislation is designed differently. It's, it's, um, it's more horizontal, if you can sort of understand my weird analogy, in the sense that it's not about individual harms. It's not about individual people, really. It's about systems and processes. It's about putting in place the framework and the reason for that is because it's so important that this bill has to be future proof. We have to make sure that uh, we're not sort of picking out individual harms and then missing potential big issues that might pop up in the future. And this is such a fast moving uh, world that we live in, this online world, that, you know, that there's things that are in everyday parlance that we've never heard of before, things like um, deep fakes, things like upskirting, things like um, pile on harassment. You know, these are phrases that we now use, but that we, four or five years ago, even no one had ever even heard of. And so we need to make sure that this legislation is, works in a, a very much more symbiotic way. So we start from the process of, of um, systems and processes to make sure that the online platforms themselves are taking this responsibility. Alongside that, of course, absolutely, there needs to be a partnership with parents. And that's where the whole digital literacy, the online digital literacy piece comes on. And that's a piece of work that comes alongside the legislation. And that's about making sure that we're all aware of what we can do to keep ourselves safe in the online world. 
I actually think is one of the quite uh, innovative, in really interesting um, elements of the bill, that, that systemic approach. I think it's, it's, it's really clever. Um, but I would see parents as part of that systematic approach because if they have a formal role, if they're able simply, I mean, at the moment we hear from parents all the time who are really worried that their child is encountering a problem but the platforms won't even acknowledge them because there is no way to connect the parent to the child. So they get bounced back if they attempt to support their 13, 12-year-old, whatever age they might be, child in that complaints process. So, you know, I, I do think they could have been more included. Um, but there's another area that was excluded, and I'm really interested to know, because I'm sure I know it's, a, it's an issue that, that worries people. Commercial pornography is not in the bill. Um, and I feel as though there must be a logic for that because it's such an obvious omission. Yeah, and it, it's not um, it, it, it's not for want of trying. Um, the um, the the legislation as it stands at the moment is about uh, user generated content because you kind of have to start somewhere. The legislation didn't all come in right at the advent, you know, and we're very near the beginning of the kind of digital world. Really, I mean, you know, twenty years ago we didn't have anything like this level of uh, of day to day interaction with the online world. So we need to make sure that we. Um, we, we, this is a kind of marker in the sand that we're sort of tr doing everything we can. We know we won't be able to do everything. I would be very keen for commercial pornography to be brought in. I mean, clearly a lot of the commercial pornography sites do come into scope because they have a user-generated aspect to them. So, you know, it, 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 and actually, as a parent myself... Uh, one of the things I'm most worried about is young, very young children stumbling across really unpleasant content online rather than um, necessarily going looking for it. So like my, you know, my very young niece and nephew, uh, they, you know, they, they, they may be playing on their parents' laptop looking at Facebook or something, you know, which is on. And then you could stumble across something. And that's what I'm really concerned about, where the real user-generated content um, issue will pick it up. But there is that tiny um, aspect that remains of the commercial pornography sites that don't have any user-generated content. And that's what the pre-legislative scrutiny panel are looking at too, to see whether there's anything we can do to bring that into scope of the bill without opening a whole new can of worms. It's a really difficult one. And uh, as some people have described the bill to me as a Christmas tree. And what we don't want to do is end up with all sorts of additional baubles being added onto it. That's right. But it's a big worry for parents. You know, two thirds of adults in the UK say they're concerned about online content. Close to half say they've seen hateful content in the past year. And, uh, you know, and, and to be fair, we all have stuff that we can do, right? We're all aware of the parental filter, filters, you know, in the Ofcom uh, survey, most parents said they were aware of parental filters and yet less than a third were actually using them. So there's a lot more that we can all do. But actually... Um, the, the government's looking at what what more we can we can do in this bill as well. I do think it's one of the most distressing things we hear from parents who've got little children, you know, eight year olds, eight nine year olds, and they come to us and say, "How do I how do I start to talk to my child about porn when they're only eight or nine? And it's you know it's very difficult to come up with a good answer. One of the central facets of the bill that you've already touched on is that children are absolutely at the centre of the bill, which of course is really, really welcome. But I'm curious to know to what extent you think the measures are really going to work. Um, and obviously they wouldn't be there if you weren't fairly confident that they were going to work. But I'm interested about those, the problems, you know, that age 
up to 18, it's a huge age range, isn't it? You know, there's a lot of nuance between a child that even 16 and 18 compared to an 18-year-old to a 12-year-old. And is there a risk that we're going to end up age-gating the internet in a way where some of those opportunities that are so important and, and so valuable to children, that they are potentially limited? Um, how, how do we do this without being really intrusive and collecting too much data on children or, or maybe even pushing them to the use of VPNs and, and giving them an even less safe version of the internet? The, the number one aim of this bill has always been to protect children you know the strongest protections from harmful or inappropriate content in the new laws are for children and young people so they will protect children but you know they also protect free speech and people's rights to participate in society and to engage in robust debate and to be able to discover all the marvels that are out there in the online world. And we all know that there is so much out there to discover which is beneficial and is, you know, in some cases quite magical, um, you know, whether that's sort of some incredible learning resources or what you know whether it's uh, like me go falling down the rabbit hole of watching endless cat videos you know it's there is always something <laughs> fabulous out there to um uh, to entertain us we don't want to prevent that but we, we have to protect our kids from some of the really unsavory content that is out there you know con- content which would never have been available when I was growing up uh stuff because you know we just didn't we didn't have access to this sort of thing content promoting self-harm content promoting eating disorders sites that um uh, allow children uh to be bullied or um uh or to you know stumble across really really unsavory material that's just not appropriate for kids you know we do need to protect childhood and uh and i think that the internet is a big enough world for there to be plenty out there while still enabling these protections to be in place it really should be shouldn't it it's it's um we often say to parents that when they think about the internet they should just think about it as a version of the offline world they just can't actually see it but it contains all the similar sorts of problems and and concerns that you have to be alive to if you're parenting a child in the offline world one of the areas that we hear from parents quite a lot at parents own and we've done lots of work on is gaming and the issue of children falling foul of scams and loot boxes and we did some work where half of children said that they thought online gaming was only fun if they were spending money uh, which I think is is kind of sad, and and gaming's not covered in the bill. Do you think that's for a different piece of legislation? Will that come further down the track? Gaming is covered in the bill to the extent that the kind of user generated uh, messaging, for example, can uh, it does come in does come in scope uh, of the bill. But when it comes to the kind of potential gambling aspects of it, that's for a different piece of legislation, which is actually the Gambling Act. And we did have, I was also ministerially responsible for this, actually. I was responsible for, um, for not for gambling, but for uh, video games and, and um, online gaming and esports and that sort of stuff. So we actually did include a call for evidence on loot boxes. And uh, in fact, probably the only thing that my children regard as being cool about my um, my job is the fact that as a result of my conversations with one of the gaming companies, they um, they introduced transparent loot boxes for a trial on one of the um, online sporting games, and it, um, they're very popular amongst um, my fourteen year old son and his peers because you can see what 
you're about to buy on one of these football games before you actually buy it, albeit that they don't buy it with real money. They buy it with sort of pretend um, online money. But it's it's the, uh, the, the there has been worries about whether there's sort of this kind of behavior leads to you know what, real life gambling, and that's what the call for evidence. Uh, gathered and what we'll be looking at in the um, in the gambling legislation that will be coming up in the months and years ahead. I have my fingers crossed that something will be done about uh, loose loot boxes. I, apart from anything else, I think they're an exploitative way to get money from children. Really. We'll take your virtual money, but we're not going to tell you what you're going to get for it doesn't feel like a very good message to children really no and the, but the thing that worries me more is the um is when this is linked to actual real money and i've i've met numerous parents over the years whose credit cards are attached to their kids gaming uh consoles and before they know it sometimes hundreds of pounds worth of um bills have been run up because kids aren't aware of what they're spending actually is real money and uh and we i know that the gaming companies are aware of this and there are a lot more protections in place now but it's um it was certainly a, a wake-up call to me when i heard a few of these stories i made sure that my credit card details were nowhere near these <laughs> machines it is really difficult, though, because some of the gaming environments do kind of require you to have a, a credit card associated with them. So it's not it's not easy, I don't think, for parents to hold the line on what their children are spending money on. No, but a bit more and more of these consoles are aware of it, and you, you know, and, and you can build in all the protections that mean that parents have to authorize a spend. So you know, there's a lot of protection out there, but it's just a case of parents having to be familiar with what their kids are doing on the online space and make sure that they're implementing the protections that are available. And actually, you know, I hold my hands up. My kids are much more digitally savvy than I am, and you know, and it does take a while to get your head around some of the. Uh, the latest trends in the online world and particularly gaming. And I guess that takes us to the the something else that you've already mentioned, which is the media literacy strategy. And I think it's quite a challenge to think about how you can start to bridge that gap between adults, not just parents, adults, understanding of the digital world. Um, when they're out of formal education, you don't have those usual access points to them. How do you think we might start to, I believe Finland is the best country in the world for levels of media literacy. Do you think we could aspire to getting our population to the same standard? Yeah, I mean, I think we do have to look around the world and see where there are the exemplars and looking at what they do and see if we can uh, take on board some of their methods. And I think this is just so important because it's all very well, the government you know, bringing in legislation and forcing the online platforms to do more. But actually, at the end of the day, we do have to take responsibility for ourselves and for our families uh, to stay safe on the on in the online world. And that comes from school so you know part of the digital media literacy strategy is about what we learn in school but not just in PHSE classes or computing classes it's got to be kind of embedded in the day-to-day -day curriculum so that's part of the conversation but also out of school you know how, how do we get young carers how do we get children that have been um, involved in uh, the youth offending um, uh, programs you know how do we catch kids that are tending to go to youth clubs and things like that how do we work with all of the adults that interact with them and make sure that they're pushing this really sensible uh, online safety message and, and digital literacy message as well and it and it's all about being able to interrogate what you read online as well and being able to 
sort of sort the wheat from the chaff and, and work out, you know, what, to, to challenge what we're aiding and, and, and the legitimacy of it. And that's, you know, it's no small ask, is it? I think about the the spread of misinformation about vaccines, for example, and how fast that has really taken hold and how convincing it is for some people, even though we have, you know, so much evidence, so many fantastic scientists explaining why it's so important. It is astonishing how easily this misinformation can spread online and convince people. Absolutely. And, and once you get um, sort of hooked into the algorithms, you know, once once you start looking up some kind of anti-vax or some kind of misinformation content online, it's amazing how suddenly you're in an echo chamber surrounded by other people who've got similar views. And it becomes very much more difficult to kind of claw your way out into kind of mainstream information. One of the other omissions um, and I'm sorry, I'm picking on the emissions because I think all the great stuff in the bill is is great stuff. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to know how we're going to tackle some of the bits that couldn't be added to this already monster five bills in one. But one area is uh, paid for harmful content. I, we've certainly heard lots of democracy activists being really concerned about that because it will still be possible to pay for divisive and misleading content. Uh, potentially even knocks elections off course or, or, you know, can create real divisions in society. How do you think we might go about tackling that to take you to some of the really big issues in life? <laughs> there still will be this responsibility on the online platforms to uh, tackle mis and disinformation that is there in the bill. And I think that's really important because, you know, we do have to make sure that the information that's going out there is is um, is robust and isn't false, you know, and, and, I, and so that, that is there in the bill. But there, there will be f- further iterations of legislation as we move down the track. You know, there's like the online advertising work that the DCMS are working on at the moment so that, you know, there's, there's lots more to do. Uh, but and it's always going to be very difficult to sort of plough that path between freedom of speech and the integrity of the the information that's coming through. Yeah, I wonder about that freedom of speech um, argument, which is a very important one. It was a really important debate. And I, I guess it's likely that there's going to be a very robust freedom of speech uh, discussion when the bill comes before Parliament. And um, do you think that there's going to be much pushback from the, from people who feel that perhaps freedom of speech is going to be impinged? This is always a, a, a massive question, isn't it? And that's why it's always been a really difficult, um, a really difficult line to tread between making sure we have those protections, but we allow people to be able to express themselves. And you know, I mean, I think the key thing here is that social media giants will have to enforce their terms and con- conditions consistently and transparently. So that's that's a really good starting point. This kind of overarching theme that's going to prevent them from arbitrarily banning any user for just expressing um, an offensive or controversial viewpoint. What we can't legislate is for uh, for people not to be offended. Do you know what I mean? But I think if users feel like they've been treated unfairly, there will be a possibility to be able to seek redress from the company. And right now that process is really slow. It's really opaque and it's terribly inconsistent. So it's really vital that internet regulations aren't used as a tool to silence an opponent or to muzzle the free media. And and that's why um, we took the decision to make news publishers content on their own sites um, exempt from the legislation. It's an incredibly complex and, and difficult space to navigate, isn't it? I'm thinking as a legislator, it must be really challenging to balance all of these these different um, positions and, and considerations. Um, 
I'm curious, do you, do you think the digital world has made it more complicated to do politics? I think if you'd been a politician maybe 50 years ago, your job would have been easier. Oh, yes, absolutely. 100 <laughs> percent. I mean, not, not least of the volume of um, the volume of correspondence that you get these days, because, uh, you know, back in the day when people just had pen and paper, you know, they had to physically write you a letter and put a stamp on it and then take it to the post box and post it. Whereas these days, somebody can roll home from the pub and fire off a, a two-word <laughs> email at one o'clock in the morning, which, you know, under previous previous um, systems, they may, not have, um, they may not necessarily have done. And so the volume of email has gone through the roof. We also get correspondence via all sorts of social media platforms as well. And, you know, and not just correspondence, of course, we get the level of abuse that, uh, that um, politicians in the past have never experience you know so it, it does make it does make the world of being an MP an entirely different one even from the one that I first encountered when I started uh, I became an MP in 2010 you know it's it's amazing how it's changed and even in the last 12 years. I mean and I guess for, for better and worse I mean in some ways it must be really good for democracy that it is so easy to get in touch with your local MP and, and talk to them um, but it must be kind of overwhelming to be on the receiving end of, of that volume of of contact how do you cope uh well i mean you, you as you say you have to balance the the upsides with the downsides you know so social media enables me to communicate with my constituents in a way that my predecessor would never have been able to so that you know you have to really embrace that but you also have to be mindful of uh of getting too involved in the negativity of it all and you know and put in place whatever it is you need to protect yourself from that sort of content I guess it's what all professionals are trying to grapple with isn't it I think um you know all of us have seen a change in working life as a result of the internet assuming the legislation works which we are all hopeful that it will have a big impact how do you hope that our experiences will be different online in the future what do you what would you like the internet to look like for our kids I mean, I think we have to be really careful. We have to manage expectations around this piece of legislation. It's never going to be the silver bullet. It's not going to it's not going to cure all the ills of the online world overnight. But what it is, is a really going to be, I, I believe, uh, a, a really good starting point. It's going to be a, a, a stake in the ground, if you like, from which we can build upon. It's the foundations of, a, of the world to come, a world in which... You know, young people, children and young people are a lot more protected from the really unsavory, unpleasant content that's online, a world in which uh, we, we're able to have, you know, the freedom of speech and expression, but not all the vile hatred and unpleasantness that unfortunately has crept into the online world so much over the last few years. I think that is a wonderful aspiration that we lay the foundations of an internet that will be great for children for now and for the future. Caroline has been an enormous pleasure talking to you. You've been such a big supporter of our work over the years and we really appreciate you taking time out today to talk to us. Um, and next week, I'm looking forward to being back with my co-podcaster, Geraldine, where uh, normal service will resume. Mm -hmm.